electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Tyler Matheson in today for Kelly Evans. And here is what we have for you on The Exchange. Stimulus done. The vaccine being distributed. But the virus still dealing a blow to consumer confidence. Stocks looking for direction today. And we look ahead to what could be the next catalysts for the markets in 2021. Plus, existing home sales drop for the first time in six months. But don't get too worried but is the red-hot housing market showing a little crack or two? Plus, Apple wants to make cars Peloton's big purchase, and Lululemon wants more namasteing power overseas. Oh, that's good. That's all coming up in rapid fire. But we begin with the markets. Namaste, Mr. Pisani. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Tyler. I'm sitting here cross-legged on the floor, as always. Uh, let's just take a look at the markets today. A bit on the flat side, uh, we've got a couple of problems. We were weak going into the European closure around 1130 Eastern time. Uh, we've recovered a little bit, but the two problems are very simple. The COVID winner is starting to weigh uh, on sentiment overall. And secondly, this new COVID strain over in the UK, we can't figure out whether it's a macro risk or not to the market here. Is new virus more resistant uh, to the vaccines. We don't know, although the market seems to feel it is not the case. So let's just take a look here. The Dow laggards that we've been seeing today, well, they're the cyclical stocks that are largely tied to that reopening story here. So we've seen some weakness recently, flatness uh, really in industrials and uh, energy stocks like Chevron. Um, even JP Morgan, the banks after a great run yesterday on the news on Friday, all weaker today. Again, these are cyclicals. You want a good indication of the COVID winter story. CarMax had terrific numbers. Their earnings were 25% above expectations. That's pretty good. But the commentary, comparable use store sales down 0.8%, demand softening in the latter part of the quarter. Those are COVID concerns uh, about demand overall here. So we want to keep an eye on these kinds of stories here. Meantime, mega cap stocks, well, they're split. Apple, of course, is at a four-month high on that car story here. Microsoft's holding up at the rest. Eh, Amazon's been flat for months. Google Alphabet's in a downtrend. Facebook's at uh, a two-month low. So we're not moving in tandem on Megacap anymore. Finally, what do they like? Well, every day. They love these thematic tech ETFs. Young investors that buy these things like crazy. Clean energy ETFs, IPOs at a historic high, online retailer, internet stocks, solar stocks. Every single day, guys, I see new creations for these stocks. People coming in, buying them, and the ETFs have to buy the underlying stocks and create new shares of the ETFs. That's how you can tell. It's like a popularity contest when you're watching these fund flows. And boy, they love those thematic tech ETFs this year. Guys, back to you. All right, Robert, thank you very much. And with the rollout of the COVID vaccine underway and Congress passing another stimulus package, what will be the key drivers for the market in 2021? Joining us now are Angela Mwanza, Managing Director and Private Wealth Advisor at UBS, and Ernesto Ramos, 
head of equities at BMO Global Asset Management. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Angela, let me begin with you and pick up on something that Bob just mentioned, and that is the push into what broadly could be said to be sustainable investing, whether it's different emerging energy trends uh, or other forms of sustainability, renewable energy, smart mobility. Do you see that as a 2021 winner? Absolutely, Tyler. Uh, I see it as a short-term 2021 winner, and I see it as a long-term winner. Ultimately, you have governments, corporations globally that are committed to carbon neutrality, which means they have to bring their greenhouse gas emissions down uh, to levels that they've committed to at the Paris Agreement. Um, if you think of who are the biggest emitters, it's power generation, it's transportation. And so whether or not you believe in climate change, you're going to look at trillions of dollars in, of investment. You're going to look at subsidies. You're going to look at regulation that on the positive side provides a great tailwind for sustainable investments. On the risk side, for those companies that are going to have to relook at their balance sheets and their business plans, that could be a little bit challenging. But we love the space. We love renewable energy. We love smart mobility. We think these are fantastic trends uh, to invest in, both in the short term and in the long term. Before I move on to Ernesto, Angela, I assume you are saying here, from what I, I sense, that this is not merely a Biden play. This is a global, a global thrust in this direction. Absolutely. Just last week, you had 70 global leaders come together to say the commitments that we made towards uh, uh, an average global warming temperature level of one and a half to two degrees Celsius is not enough. We need to up the ante. We need to ramp it up. And so if we just look at something like renewable energy right now, 8 percent of global electric production comes from wind and solar. By 2040, we anticipate 40 to 45 percent to come from wind and solar. Same goes to, 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 to looking at batteries and electric cars. 4% of newly sold cars are electric today. That's going to ramp mm -hmm. up also to about 40 45%, going from a $6 billion market to a trillion dollar market. The opportunity, again, whether or not you believe in climate change or like ESG or sustainable investments, ultimately there is going to be incredible tailwind that is supportive of these investments. Ernesto, as we look at 2020, I think the story of the year has, equity-wise, has largely been uh, growth over value and big over small. The uh, valuations of growth stocks versus value stocks are, are, that gap is really as wide maybe as it's ever been. Do you see 2021 as the year that that compresses some or that value and small begin to close the gap on big and grow? I think that valuation should compress, and that means that uh, the valuation gap between uh, small and value, which as a group and, and large and growth, will, will start to narrow. And, and there's a lot of catalysts, but, but uh, very simply put, there's going to be a very strong economic rebound in the U.S. economy. We anticipate in 2021, as the vaccinations uh, uh, grow, in terms of uh, having been given to more pe more and more people, as well as pent-up demand for for consumption uh, is unleashed. So we, we're very excited about the prospects for earnings growth, which at the end of the day is what will drive stock prices uh, in the year 2021. 
from where we sit. At the end of the day, earnings always do, don't they? I mean, that, really, when you look at it, it's it's earnings plus in plus dividends plus some some speculative value in there that determines the price of a stock. So let me ask you, Ernesto, with the growth stock valuations where they are, whether they are stretched or not, they are high. Uh, you can make a case that they're not stretched relative to interest rates, I suppose, but. Will 2021 be a kind of show me year where those companies that have high valuations, if they miss on earnings, they're going to have the, the, the they're going to hit a banana peel, aren't they? Well, that's that's been the case for, for a long time now. Mm -hmm. uh, these stocks, uh, a lot of these stocks are very, very are priced for perfection. Right. And, and there's no room for error. Uh, we see the opportunity in the cyclical stocks, even though today is not a good day for them. And it hasn't been for a number of years. But as the rebound starts taking place in the actual economy, perhaps with a second fiscal stimulus package, but uh, but certainly in the in the general economy rebounding and, and perhaps interest rates going higher as as uh, more and more supply right. to the market, we will see a rebound in, in the more cyclical areas of the market, in particular in the value areas of the market and, and stocks like uh, Morgan Stanley, uh, Walmart. Well, Walmart's very defensive, but uh, ACCO might also do well mm -hmm. in this type of Ernesto, thank you very much. And I saw Angela sort of nodding her head in agreement there. Thank <laughs> you both very much. Have a good holiday season, folks. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Consumer confidence falling now for a second straight month in December as Congress passes through a $900 billion COVID relief bill. The package includes $600 in stimulus checks, additional unemployment benefits, PPP loans, funding for vaccines. Here's what it doesn't include. Liability protection for businesses. It is a major concern of our next guest. Uh, the consumer confidence number, they produce it. Uh, head of the conference board, Steve Odland, uh, is the president and CEO and a CNBC contributor. Steve, it's great to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. Hi, Tyler. Good to see you. Yeah, likewise. It's really good. Uh, you know, when I see surveys like this come out and there's a little dip uh, here, uh, I've got a question. Is, I, I, I have to ask, when was the survey done? Uh, because that can often color the result. Right. It was done about uh, 10 days ago. So this is post-election, uh, but pre-COVID, uh, you know, the, the vaccine news. But this is a two-month decline here. And if you look at the components of the Consumer Confidence Index, there's what's called the present situation analysis and then the, the future expectations. The future expectations, meaning the next six months, actually went up right. uh, versus last month. So it's all about right now. And the concern is jobs. And if you look at it state by state, you see the numbers go down significantly in the states that have gone into lockdown, California, New York, Pennsylvania. So those areas where businesses have been shut back down, restaurants uh, you know, are closed down again, you see worries about jobs. And so this has come down. So the question here is, how is this going to impact the holiday spending season? You know, I'm a little less bullish than uh, in our NRF and other sources that uh, on retail sales for this for this month. Uh, I think, you know, if you look at what's happened in November, it's come down. Uh, you know, October was up a little bit, early sales. But I'm worried about the holiday season here. I'm worried about jobs. And I think our, our consumers around the country are as well. Yeah, and I think, I think you've really nailed it there. I think it, it is directly tied to the idea that business have shut, shut back down. There is concern in the community broadly about the virus. And people are staying home and hunkering down a little bit because I think they're worried as this, as this virus has spiked. But as you point out, the, the, the future predictions are pretty doggone, pretty doggone good. 
Well, I think the stimulus deal helps. You know, you sure. you, you talked about that, and uh, you know, the bill gives something to everybody. We've got a little bit of help for the airlines to keep them going for a couple more months. You've got direct stimulus payments. You've got extended unemployment, which helps. You've got more PPP loans, especially to the smallest of businesses. And, and an interesting twist on it is that they're going to give instant, uh, you can apply for forgiveness right up front if you've got a loan for $150,000 mm-hmm. or less. You've got some education support. But the big problem here is that, you know, we all, all the policymakers are for small businesses, which are the job makers, but there's no liability protection in here. And you, th- you say, well, why is that important? Well, they're quoted as saying, you know, aren't these businesses bad? Look, these food producers who were in the meat plants early on had employees getting sick, and it's terrible. They didn't do a good enough job, and we ought to put them in prison, and we ought to be able to sue them. This is what's scaring the daylights out of small businesses because they can't afford these settlements. They can't afford the trial attorneys coming after them if their employees get sick. And so you're seeing bankruptcy skyrocket. You're you're seeing 20 to 25 percent of restaurants go out and... Probably never will come Do back. Do you have data? Let me, let me just interrupt you for a second as we're, as we're running a little tight on time. I understand the threat here that, that, that businesses are worried about getting sued either by customers or employees or vendors who say you didn't do a good, good enough job protecting me. Do you, and, and, you, and, and I, you're completely right, I think there are a lot of small businesses that have gone out of business. Do you have data that tie the one to the other? In other words, that, that those small businesses that have gone out of business say we went out of business because we are either afraid of lawsuits or we have been sued and cannot uh, sustain the, the settlements. Up to this point, the data shows that they're running out of cash. But when you talk to them about the future, which is what we're concerned about here, mm-hmm. they're saying that they don't know what would happen if they got sued because they don't have the resources to deal with it. Large companies can deal with the settlement. Small companies yep. cannot. And this will kill jobs going forward. And that's why it's important to have this coverage in some fashion. You know, forget about gross negligence. I mean, you know, if people are grossly negligent, fine. But, you right. know, there has to be a safe haven, a safe harbor you know, CDC rules, whatever it is, there's got to be a safe harbor under which small businesses can operate. Steve, thank you very much. Happy holidays to you. Very good to thank see you. you. Very good to see you. Steve Adlin with the Conference Board and a CNBC contributor. Coming up, existing home sales dropping for the first time in six months. Is it just a little winter slowdown or a sign that the housing market could be cooling off? Plus, a CNBC investigation you will not want to miss. He said, I'll be fine. And I said, Omar, I think this is a matter of life and death. And he said, I'll be good. And as COVID-19 started to spread, the Trump administration added hundreds of screeners at U.S. airports. Yet they called it quits months after discovering it wasn't working at all. Dozens of screeners themselves got sick with the virus. Some died. That story ahead. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back, everybody. We've got a news alert now on IPOs at the New York Stock Exchange, and Leslie Picker has the details. Hi, Leslie. Hi, Tyler. A big development in the world of direct listing, specifically the SEC approving a New York Stock Exchange request to allow companies to raise primary capital while doing direct listings uh, and also having that primary capital not be underwritten uh, by a set of banks. This is noteworthy because we've seen a slew of prominent direct listings, namely Spotify, Slack, Asana, Palantir, that have gone public this way over the last few years. None of them have been able to actually issue shares and raise capital as a result of doing so. This rule change will allow companies to pursue this method of going public, which is seen as a much more efficient mechanism for price discovery, while also raising cash that they can then use to fund investment in their business. Quickly after this was announced, Bill Gurley, who's been a big champion of direct listings, tweeting that this is a wonderful 2020 Christmas present to the founders, employees and investors at VC-backed startups because the SEC approved the ability for them to add primary capital to a direct listing. Uh, now, this rule did receive some complaint from uh, the Council of Institutional Investors. They petitioned against this rule change, saying that it does not offer investors the same kind of legal protections uh, that they have in traditional IPO. So definitely a development to keep watching in 2020 as we've seen a huge group of IPOs in the pipeline that could now choose this method if they want to raise primary capital by going public as well as using this method for price discovery while not using an underwriter to do so. Tyler. All right, Leslie, thank you very much. Leslie Picker. Sales of existing homes fell from October to November, the first time that's happened in six months, while at the same time, housing inventory dropped to the lowest level on record. For the read on real estate, let's bring in Diana Olick. Hi, Di. Hi, Ty. Yeah, this incredibly hot housing market just continues to break records, but not all of them good ones. Sales did pull back ever so slightly for the month. That hasn't happened since May, but sales were still up 26% from November of last year. So I wouldn't read too much into the monthly drop. The headline is supply. There's just none of it. Down 22% from a year ago to a 2.3 month supply. That's the lowest month supply on record and the lowest actual count of homes for sale on record. And that's pushing prices way up. The median price nearly 15% higher than a year ago. A lot of this is a mixed shift because there are far more sales on the high end than on the low end. Sales of homes priced between $750,000 and a million dollars are up 88% year over year. Sales of million-dollar-plus homes up 85 percent. Below 250,000, sales are flat to much lower. So what does December hold? Well, not the usual winter freeze for sure. Realtors say their locks box indicator, which are those little things on the door to let home shoppers in, show very, very strong foot traffic even now. Tyler? Yeah, a hot market just stays that way despite that little dip in November. Diana Olick, thank you. And uh, after the first month-to-month drop uh, since the summer, could this housing market uh, be headed for something a little cooler than that? I, my next guest says not likely. Let's bring in Ryan Gorman, president and CEO of Coldwell Banker. Ryan, welcome. Good to have you with us. Uh, I, I mean, i got to agree with Diana there and, and most people. The 2.5% the, the drop in November looks like a little blip. Maybe it's a blip down. But overall, sales this year up 20, 22% or 25% from this time a year ago. What kind what kind of year have you all had at Coldwell Banker compared with last year? 
It's certainly been a remarkable year, and I think that strength you referred to continues. So I wouldn't read anything into this other than a little bit of a seasonal decline. Still the year-over-year numbers, which I encourage you to pay attention to year-over-year numbers until we lap April, coming up here in a few months, incredible strength. And I'd say that strength is really more universal than I've ever seen it across geographies, across price points, and really across product types with single family and attached townhome leading the way. When you, single family attached townhomes, uh, Diana pointed to uh, affluent uh, uh, buyers and sellers, uh, growth there, huge, uh, Mm -hmm. above million dollar, huge. Is that what you've seen in your business? Certainly in the luxury properties, as well as I'd say kind of the midpoint properties, a little higher than the average sales price. We're Cobalt Banker. We sell more million-dollar homes than any of their brands, so we're certainly exposed to that trend. We're seeing a big lean into that. We're seeing people accelerate life plans, seek more indoor and outdoor space, uh, increased likelihood that they're going to explore those tax and weather climates that are a little more favorable to them. So the higher end, but as well the mid-end, is performing exceptionally if well. If you give me a ballpark number here, if you were to compare total transactions that have come through your system in 2020 compared with 2019, what have you seen? Well, be a little careful. Given we're a public company, we haven't right. disclosed this quarter's numbers just yet. But I will say that the NAR numbers uh, do tell the story, and it's what I'm seeing in MLSs around the country as well, which is. Throughout the geographies, more consistency, NAR breaks it down to four territories, more consistent strength than I've seen before and a continuation of that. So mostly what we've seen throughout the year, which NAR supports, is we've made up for that incredible slowdown in April and May. And if the trend continues, we'll more than make up for that with those uh, national numbers. Is the 2021 market going to be dependent on two things? One, the continued low rate of uh, mortgage loans, the interest rates, number one. And number two, this trend of people away maybe from inner city urban areas and out to the suburbs or uh, to tax havens or warmer climes. Virus driven partly. I think 21 is going to depend mostly on a continuation of these life changes. So some of what you mentioned is definitely true. Low rates support this market, but nobody moves three states away because of a great rate on a 30-year fixed rate. So it's really people seeking more space, the mm-hmm. home that meets their lifestyle needs, as well as a continuation of those trends. And based on the open transactions and AR sites, it appears that momentum continues. Ryan, thanks very much. Have a good holiday. Thank you. You we, as well. We appreciate it. Coming up, winners in a losing sector. A look at the stocks in utilities that outperformed this year. Plus the NBA getting ready for another season. My son could not be more excited about it. This is gonna be very different. There will not be a bubble. It's not all taking place in Orlando. There are gonna be road games. There's gonna be travel. We look at how the NBA plans to navigate those challenges amid COVID. The exchange returns in two minutes. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. John Ford sits down with NVIDIA CEO Jensen Wong and ServiceNow CEO Bill McDermott on the future of AI, live from ServiceNow's Knowledge 2024 conference in Vegas. Closing bell overtime, today for Eastern, CNBC. Welcome back, everybody. You 
Utilities, one of the laggards this year, but there were still winners within the sector. Dom Tu joins us now with some names in today's sectornomics. Dom? All right, Tyler. So one of only four sectors in the S&P 500 that's actually negative on the year. As you can see here, the overall S&P is up about 14% on that year-to-date basis. But the utility sector, not the worst, not nearly as bad as energy. Still, though, down 6% on a year-to-date basis as a lot of folks focus on growth stocks as opposed to those value dividend-oriented ones out there. As for what's driving the underperformance within that utility sector, these are some of the names that have had some of the biggest losses. You take a look at these ones, you're, talking, you're saying First Energy down 38%, PPL down 25%, Con Edison down 22%, and Centerpoint Energy down 22% as well. But there are around four stocks in the sector that have been actually positive year-to-date and are holding things up, not the least of which is the top of the list. Nextera Energy up 22%. I focus there because it is, it is by far and away the biggest component of the overall sector. It's worth roughly 17% of that utility sector there. American Water up 21%, AES up 13%, and Excel Energy up 3% as well. By the way, that Excel Energy trade up 3% for the year also carries with it a 2.7% dividend. So some investors are looking for that kind of trade as well. So as you look towards utilities, Tyler, the dividend payments are key, but an underperforming sector so far for sure. That's the sectornomics for this month. Back over to you. All right. Thank you, Professor Chu. And now to Sue from Chu to Sue for a CNBC <laughs> news update. Hey, Sue. Hey, Ty. Good to see you. Here's what's happening at this hour, everybody. California's Governor Gavin Newsom has named the state's elections chief, Alex Padilla, to fill the remainder of Kamala Harris's U.S. Senate term. Padilla will be California's first Latino senator. For the fifth year in a row, Americans' life expectancy rose in 2019. The average edged up to 78.8 years. However, the number of deaths hit a new record, and 2020 is expected to set another high with more than 3 million deaths, driven, of course, by the coronavirus pandemic. In southern England, there are now nearly 3,000 trucks waiting to cross the English Channel. More than 2,200 are parked at an airport. Sky News reports a deal to reopen the border could come a bit later today. And if you think alligators and sewers are just urban legends, take a look at that guy. That is a six-foot gator stuck in a storm drain in Venice, Florida. It took four deputies to lift a concrete slab and let that little guy she said tongue-in-cheek, yeah. escaped to a nearby lake. Yeah. Thinking of moving to Florida? Yeah, think again. <laughs> yeah, think again. All right, thanks very much, Sue. You got a tie. All right, Apple could be planning to hit the road, quite literally. Peloton's manufacturing move pushes it to new highs, and cruise lines going to great lengths to stay financially afloat. All that and more ahead in Rapid Fire. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch up on a few stories uh, that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines, Josh Lipton, Seema Modi, Dom Chu. Welcome, everybody. Good to see all three of you. It's the news that has techies and Robinhood traders all aflutter. According to Reuters, Apple is accelerating its self-driving car program called Project Titan. 
The tech giant reportedly has its eyes on a 2024 release to produce a passenger vehicle that could include proprietary breakthrough battery technology. The report powering shares of Apple up more than 3%, giving a lift, too, to some of the stocks that make self-driving car technology. Lodine up more than 20%. But the news putting a little bit of pressure on Tesla. A lackluster first day in the S&P yesterday. That stock now down by about 4% today. Josh, I guess you have to look at this and say this could be a, a rival to Tesla. It's no surprise. I mean, if Apple comes in with all its cash and capital, uh, it would uh, chill just about anybody. Yeah, that's a great point, Todd. Listen, I mean, I think if you're a company, uh, you never want to hear Apple is moving into your market, not with that balance sheet, those deep pockets, those design and tech chops. Again, though, um, Tyler, you know, we've been discussing these reported attempts by Apple to move into this market for it's got to be five or six years at this point. So if you're a Tesla investor, it's not as though that that headline caught you off guard. You knew that was a potential risk. I would also point out, you know, you mentioned there, Tyler, that report says by 2024, they would like to have a car. On I don't the road. believe it. You know, that seems that seems very ambitious. That would be I mean, think about the effort that would take just in terms of building out your supply chain, ramping up your production. And, and four years is a long time. I mean, Tesla's going to be around. By that point, you'd have to assume it's going to be bigger, more entrenched. Maybe Elon is doing more than a million cars a year. I think it's tough to really look at that and think, you know, yeah, that, that's somehow a, a Tesla knockout punch. And you would, you would think also, I mean, think of the regulatory things and safety concerns that, that Apple would have to go through to get approval to start to market, let alone the idea that they don't have any automobile manufacturing capability that I know of. Maybe they go out and buy somebody who does or partner with a Toyota or partner with a Mazda or somebody. Uh, I, and so, Seema, would you would you ride in, a, in an autonomous car? Listen, if Apple can bring the design, the, the, the sexy design of its products to the car, then I think it could certainly as you know really give tesla a run for its money i think you know we've seen tim cook he's dominated the living room can that extend to the garage but to josh's point you know what does that look like is it actually an apple branded car or through the idea of software and licensing its technology yeah Dom, would you what do you think of these these autonomous vehicles you, you like you what do you think i would not be a first mover with regard <laughs> to going into one of those things I, I i i'm one of those folks who waits for the for the you know a few yeah. months to pass before buying an iphone let alone putting myself yeah. in the my family members I'll, I'll let LeBeau take like the first ride. Exactly, right? So I, I would do that Just first. Just let LeBeau do it. But here's what I would say. I would feel much more <laughs> comfortable in one of those vehicles if it maybe wasn't Apple that was building it, that they went through to Seema's point and Josh's point, the design and technology behind it, but then partnered with somebody else to actually make the vehicle. So that could be a big step. Of, of course, we're all speculating at this point, right? Oh, so. We are all speculating. Who knows? And, and they've proved uh, me and many others wrong, has Apple, many times before. Let's move on to Peloton. Can't talk enough about Peloton flexing its muscles. Fitness company to buy the exercise equipment maker Precore. I remember a Precore something. I think it was a stepper that I had in my basement for years. Unused, uh, but, uh, but a good product. News of the deal, which uh, should close early next year, powering Peloton now to an all-time high. The stock dump, jumping double digits. KeyBank raising its price target on Peloton to a street high on the Precore acquisition, noting that increased manufacturing capacity should help alleviate the biggest impediment to growth. Here's another one where a partnership uh, looks like the smart way to go for Peloton. Would you agree, Dom? 
So here's what I would say. I think there's a lot of positivity because this could be viewed as both a vertical integration and a horizontal integration as well. I mean, vertical in that they are shoring up their supply chain and manufacturing capabilities like many analyst notes are pointing out right now. They've got the capacity with the manufacturing at Precor to kind of turn out more product. It's also horizontal because Precor is kind of like a competitor, right? Sure. They, they make equipment that goes into physical gyms. I mean, you, you have a high-end one having a Precor in your home. A lot of people don't have those Precor machines at home. They are very much found in those kind of mid- to higher-end gym facilities. So with, with Peloton, you're talking about a company that has the capital, both from a figurative and literal standpoint, to make this kind of an acquisition. The mm -hmm. positivity here is just because they, they've got a consolidation play here that kind of takes out a competitor and one of their supply Are there regulatory well. worries here, Josh, at all? To, 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 uh, to Dom's point that this could be seen as a horizontal acquisition, they're taking out a competitor? You know, it doesn't look to me like that you would have some type of regulatory challenge there. I think what is potentially interesting there, Tyler, is we were just talking about Apple, where who is Peloton now competing against? They're going to have their Apple, right? Apple just launched its own yep. fitness service. Our own crack tech reviewer, Todd Hazelton, tried it out, said nice workouts, left him sweaty and happy. I think it has how Todd put it. I think if you're Peloton, you're looking at it and thinking, listen, we have to do whatever we can to strengthen and build out our own ecosystem here when you're watching those kind of chess moves. I have a, a, a Peloton. I use it a lot. It's been the, really the only in-house device that I've ever stuck with. I hope those instructors who've been there a long time, I hope they got some stock. I hope they got some stock. They ought to. All right, finally, 2020 uh, was the year of loungewear and athleisure, sweatpants, yoga pants, tops, shares of Lulu, Lemon, up more than 180% from its 52-week low. Now the company has its eyes on global growth, according to the Financial Times, Lulu trying to harness the worldwide yoga wear boom to more than triple its overseas revenue. Last quarter, the company only generated 14% of its revenues from other countries. Uh, the uh, Lulu CEO, Calvin McDonald, saying the, uh, to the FD, there's no reason why that can't be 50-50 in the years to come. I don't see why it can't, Seema. Yeah, athleisure, baby, not just a U.S. phenomenon. And anecdotally speaking, having had conversations, Zoom calls with folks in London and Dubai, they're doing the same thing we are, you know, work blouse on top and athleisure on the bottom. So spending more of Lululemon's time and its marketing focus on these other markets like Europe and Asia that may not be as penetrated as the U.S. seems to make sense. And having also lived in London, I will just say, walking down Kensington High Street, you don't see a lot of European athleisure brands. Yes, sportswear, uh, uh, like Adidas, but not too many at leisure brands. So there certainly seems to be an opportunity there. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I hope my wife is not listening because I was in a Lululemon store on Sunday. Okay, and it was crowded, and and their products are very very good. I think that's the the basic message there for Lululemon for me uh, is that the products are good, whether it's for men or not. I mean, you, I don't know what, uh, Dom, you use some of their golf, uh, golfing gear, golf pants and so forth. I absolutely do. I, I never thought I'd be, I mean, I don't know any yoga wear. Let's just put it that way, but I have, <laughs> I cannot believe how much I've come around to their pants and shorts. And, and to the point there, Lulu, we were talking about competitors to uh, Peloton, right? I mean, Lululemon's yeah. one of them. They got that mirror product out there right now. Right. But if you look at the way Lulu is stacking up to your point, Tyler, the Lululemon in my town always has a line outside of it. So it kind of tells you a little bit about the traffic. But I would also say this is a stock that's up like almost 200% from the lows that we saw back in yep. March. So maybe it's already priced in. Yeah, I, I got to say that, that, that the, the, the vision, the visual of you wearing tight yoga uh, compression, or me the same, is just too much information, right? It's just too much.
No way. No. Do it, Dom. Come on. <laughs> I love that. No one wants to see that. No one wants to see that, do they? All right, guys, thanks very much. Always fun to be with you. All righty, terrific. Uh, we've got some breaking news now on Walmart, and Sue Herrera has the details. Hey, Sue. Hello, Ty. Uh, yes, we do have breaking news. The uh, Justice Department is alleging that Walmart violated the controlled substances law. They have filed a lawsuit against Walmart. The Justice Department's suit claims that Walmart sought to boost its profits by understaffing its pharmacy and pressuring employees to fill prescriptions quickly. That made it difficult for pharmacists to reject invalid prescriptions. And the Justice Department alleges that enabled widespread drug abuse nationwide. So they are saying that Walmart is complicit in the opioid crisis. Walmart anticipated this. It's the country's largest retailer by revenue. It says it has been expecting the complaint. It's, it sued the federal government in October to fight the allegations preemptively. Basically, there are a couple of headlines here. They violated the controlled substances law. They ignored warnings from their own frontline pharmacists, according to the Justice Department. And they understaffed their pharmacies and pressured them to move pills. That is the allegations in the suit. As we said, uh, Walmart pre-sued uh, against the Justice Department in October. You're up to date, Ty. You can see Walmart there on our chart. I'll send it back to you. Mm, that would be two titans going head to head in the ring. Absolutely. Sue, thank you. Mm -hmm. Still ahead, the government put hundreds of screeners at airports, put on hundreds of screeners at airports to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. Uh, but a CNBC investigation found the program not only didn't work, the government stopped it months after knowing it was failing and months after dozens of screeners came down with a virus. We'll hear from one woman who lost the love of her life. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back, everyone. International travelers entering the United States during the first nine months of the year became very familiar with a different type of frontline worker, a Customs and Border Protection officer doing a health evaluation or a CDC analyst taking their temperature. The administration deployed as many as 750 of these screeners to find sick passengers, bringing the virus into the U.S. But we found it was a failure that put federal employees and contractors at risk. Kayla Tausche reports in our CNBC investigation, Flying Blind. It's irresponsible. It's murder. And it's just undignified. Yvette Williams lost the love of her life, Omar Palmer, this spring to COVID-19. For 17 years, Palmer served as a customs officer at New York's JFK airport. He was also a bodybuilder, a foodie, and in Williams's words, a protector. But by the end of March, with Palmer donning protective gear to screen passengers arriving from overseas, she wanted to protect him. I said, Omar, I think this is a matter of life and death. And he said, I'll be good. As the virus surged outside the U.S., the White House Coronavirus Task Force established the country's first line of defense at airports, assigning nearly 700 screeners from the Departments of Homeland Security and Health and Human Services to check international passengers for COVID symptoms arriving from a growing list of countries. These prudent, targeted, and temporary actions will decrease the pressure on public health officials screening incoming travelers, expedite the processing of U.S. citizens and permanent residents returning from China. The only problem? 
it didn't work. Joe Grogan led domestic policy for the White House until May. Well, we weren't finding anybody. I mean, we were finding like zero people. So it became pretty clear relatively quickly that it was uh, from a public health perspective as far as identifying people who were COVID positive, it was a failure. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says between January and September, 776,000 passengers were screened. Only nine cases of COVID were detected. That's one out of every 85,000 screens. And as travel bans went into place, bottlenecks formed at Customs and JFK's Terminal 4, where Palmer worked in Dallas, in Chicago. The risks rising for workers on these front lines. Basically, no travelers were detected to have COVID through this process. How many of the screeners themselves ended up getting sick? More than people we identified is what was reported to the task force. I think it was in, the, in a few dozen is my recollection, but it was a pretty stark data point when it was relayed out that not only are we not finding anybody, we are getting more CDC and DHS employees infected with COVID at the airports and we are finding people. Six task force officials tell CNBC the group discussed multiple times removing these screeners from their posts. Ultimately, they decided the role of these personnel as a deterrent and a show of force outweighed the costs. The officials requested anonymity because they still serve in or do business with the administration. One official says the debate was not about the screeners themselves, telling CNBC, we were aware that they were getting sick, but it was a question of whether the testing was effective. Another official says it was a running discussion for a couple of months. Ken Cuccinelli represented DHS in the early response. There was, there's always risk for people on the front line, but what we have found, including with our own frontline folks, is that those individuals, the, the ones who have caught the virus, have done so at rates similar to the communities in which they were working. The CDC ended the screening program September 13th, eight months after it began, six months after the task force first knew it was not effective. A November study released by the agency acknowledged the program was resource intensive with low yield of positive cases because they were only looking for people with symptoms. So how would you respond to allegations by other task force officials uh, and some employees and some unions that this program was more dangerous for them than it was effective for the country as a whole? Well, I, I find it hard to believe that um you know, there weren't people just missed who had the virus um, that we were trying to screen for with the only tools that were then available. For Omar Palmer, passenger operations would be his last assignment. He went home April 1st after being exposed at the airport and died one month later at 40 years old. Now Williams wonders what could have been done to save him. To know that so much was known at the highest levels of government and that that information was not shared and that those that care was not given to frontline workers people as collateral damage and it's disgusting they were disposable In a statement, HHS said uh, that the program 
uh, was the best option that they had at the time, defending the program and blaming China for obscuring information about how the virus spread and also saying that uh, the majority of the early cases in the U.S. were indeed tied to travel. Task force officials tell me that at first they believed that these screeners would keep visibly sick people from getting on planes and make people feel safer to travel. But as we now know, contagious COVID can also be invisible. Tyler? Uh, Kayla, wonderful piece. Uh, a couple of quick questions. Obviously, these, this protocol was put in place before the nasal swab tests were widely available. That's not what these people were doing. They were just questioning, do you have symptoms? Do you have a fever, et cetera, right? That's right. So all the Customs and Border Protection staffed the first line of defense. So when people were uh, disembarking from these planes, they were immediately either met at the gate or near the gate uh, by these staffers conducting these health questionnaires, or it was uh, merged with the process of checking passports and asking information about travel. If any of those answers mm -hmm. struck the officer as questionable, then they would be sent for further evaluation by the CDC. These workers were all wearing PPE. Uh, but as we know, a lot of these bottlenecks were forming. Uh, there were hundreds of these workers who were reallocated from other places to do this type of work. And the task force knew early on that it wasn't catching anybody. All right. Thanks very much, Kayla. Kayla Tausche, marvelous story. Thank you again. All right. Coming up, the NBA season kicks off today, and it looks a lot different than the one that ended just two months ago. Shortest offseason ever. Those details next. And don't forget, you can watch us live on the go using the CNBC app. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. The NBA season, believe it or not, kicks off tonight and amid a surge in COVID cases across the country and around the world, players will not be living in a bubble like they did during the end of the 2020 season. Eric Chemi joins us now with what's behind that decision. Eric. Tyler, that's right. The NBA bubble that we saw a few months ago, that was meant simply to finish up a season that had been mostly completed before the pandemic hit. It cost the league almost $200 million to have that bubble, but the NBA decided against creating a bubble for this entire full season that's about to start. Commissioner Adam Silver telling the Today Show this morning there was a serious mental toll for players to be cooped up for so long away from their families. So instead of creating a bubble, the league will focus on daily testing of players and staff and ensuring everybody keeps to safe behaviors. Here's Adam Silver from earlier today. I'm not ashamed to say we're balancing the economic factors as well, and not just for the players in this league, but for the literally tens of thousands of jobs that are dependent on the NBA continuing. So when we weighted all those factors together, you know, the teams together with um, our Players Association, we, made, we decided this was the right time to go forward. There are certainly some differences from last year compared to normal. This season is starting two months late. It's ending a month late, and it's 10 games shorter. And because of the Canadian government, the Toronto Raptors, they'll be playing their home games in Tampa, Florida. Only a handful of teams will allow for any fans to start the season, and even those numbers will be very limited. Commissioner Silver saying the league is prepared to change its schedule depending on possible outbreaks within teams. 
Tyler, oh. back to you. All right, thank you very much, Eric. Eric Chemi reporting. And that, folks, does it for The Exchange. The hour goes by fast. Up next on Power Lunch, the billionaire real estate developer and owner of The Grove in Southern California, Rick Caruso, will join us to discuss the California shutdown and how his properties are faring. I'll join Rahel Solomon after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.